If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the September 13th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. I'm Michael Taylor Gray in Los Angeles. Welcome. On this outing, our show is about an iconic labor leader and a prairie bitch, but first, a couple of great films streaming online. If you've watched the new Cinderella on Amazon, you may have noticed Nicholas Galitzine as the prince and said, who is that handsome devil? Well, back in 2016, we had the same question when he was the handsome devil in the gay indie film, Handsome Devil. My name is John Butler and I'm a writer and director. Shouldn't you be asleep? Shouldn't you? I'm not the one playing in the quarterfinal tomorrow. That is why I'm not sleeping. I can't. My nerves. You're gonna win. You don't know that. I don't know the first thing about rugby, but I feel it in my bones. Are you gonna be there? It's not really my team. This one time, before you came here, one of your teammates flushed my head down the toilet. So that is not going in my autobiography. You're better off without me. I will be rooting for you, though. Handsome Devil is a comedy drama set in a boys' boarding school in Ireland, an unspecified school, in an unspecified time that could be now. And it's about two boys who think they're radically different to each other and who are forced to share a room together. One is a archetypal jock and the other is a kind of sensitive and a feat musician. And they hate each other on sight, but they come under the influence of an English teacher who begins to teach them that their differences are pretty invisible and that there is no real point in building a wall between each other, which is the first thing they do when they have to share the room. So it's a story about acceptance and finding your own voice. What inspired it? I went to a school very like the one in the film. But it's not a period film. It's inspired by the fact that in 2017 there still isn't a premiership soccer player who's gay. There still isn't a elite rugby union player who's gay. And in professional male team sports there's very few role models for young LGBT kids who are good at sports. I mean, one thing I didn't mention in the pitch for the film is that the rugby player, the seeming archetypal jock, is gay. And it's a film about kind of not labouring under assumptions about people based on how they look. And I kind of sprang from my own childhood. I'm gay and I love sport. And as a young man... I found it very difficult to reconcile those two things and I kind of always felt that you had to make a decision in one direction or the other. But actually you don't. You can be anything you want, providing you're kind of true to yourself and have the courage to do that. So, yeah, it springs from an autobiographical place, but it has a lot to say in 2017, I think. Things are getting better year on year. They always are, but 
sport is falling behind society at this point in this area and it's kind of sad to see. I'm Irish and in my country two years ago we were the first country in the world to pass marriage equality by a vote of the people but it's important to remember that despite all the advances it can be awful to grow up LGBT in any country in any place in the world. It's easy to forget that when you live in a liberal hub work in the creative arts or live in a city and you're in your 40s and you're happy it's easy to forget how hard it is to be young and that's a very important part of this film too. Just because we've made progress doesn't mean it's easy to be different. It gets better is a kind of interesting idea, I think, generally speaking, because it shouldn't have to get better when you're old enough to get married. It needs to get better at the moment your identity is forged, and that is when you're a kid. So the conventional narrative of LGBT existence is grow up and move to the city and find your tribe. But I don't understand why that has to be accepted. It needs to get better when you're eight or four or two or nine. You know, that's when you're in the furnace of creating yourself and being created by other people. So um, this is a film for young people and it's a, it's a film that um, really hopes to, to have something to say to them. My favourite line in the film comes from Ned's new English teacher. Never, ever, ever use a borrowed voice. And I understand that came directly from your life. I was caught plagiarising an English essay with song lyrics by the Velvet Underground and my English teacher wrote a note to that effect in the margin. We're talking 30 years ago and I'm still bearing it in mind every single day. I think that message is the defining one of my life for sure, but I would say for most people's lives, the kind of search to be authentic and to cast off all the things that you take on growing up. You know, you use inspiration from all areas, but the journey of a life is in figuring out who you are. So yeah, it's taken me uh, forever and it's not done yet, but I think it's kind of a noble ambition because I don't buy into the idea of having to declare for any particular side in almost any area of your life. I think you just have to be truly individual. And I will say that that is actually an American conceit in a way. I mean, this is a country that's founded on that principle and it's something that's very admirable about it. You know, that quest for individuality is enshrined in this country in a way that can be very inspirational to see. But American politics is increasingly a team sport. Yeah, well, this film was written, you know, there's a scene in this film where Ned, the hero, builds a wall in the middle of his room to separate him from Connor. And this film, which is a comedy, was written during a period in our history when the idea of building walls was ridiculous. And subsequently, that has become very clearly discussed in world politics. And it's just mad to see that progress in terms of liberal acceptance is not a relentlessly upward curve. You know, it's actually a pendulum. And you make these great advances in one period or in one presidency and then they're eroded and you're returned back to your original position. So I think it's important really to be vigilant, especially when it comes to young people. The battle isn't won and the idea of us having arrived at a place where you can be exactly who you want is not entirely valid. So it's so important as liberal people in the arts that we don't forget that it isn't won. It may be won for us personally because we can go out and have brunch in West Hollywood, but that's about as far away from the lives of young people who are really struggling as it gets. And, you know, gay men and women are being beaten and killed and tortured in Chechnya. In my country, there's still visible discrimination at every level of society. And, and in America, in nearly half the states, I think there's anti-LGBT legislation in place. By no metric has this been won. And uh, this film is a comedy, and it's about using a comic lens to tell a story that's serious. And I think that's a valid way to tell a story. But it's, it's nice to be able to talk about the serious issues that underpin it, because Apart from having a responsibility to do that as an LGBT adult who has a voice, I just personally feel it was worse definitely before and it has improved for sure, but the minute you think it's won, you start losing. You cast actor Andrew Scott in a pivotal role as the school's English teacher. American audiences know him as Professor Moriarty in Sherlock. 
He's also an out gay man. Does that still carry consequences in 2017? That discrimination or that fear of losing work through openly declaring your sexual orientation is alive and kicking in 2017. That's a very real issue for LGBT actors, particularly if you want to be considered as a matinee idol or you want to have romantic straight lead parts. It's definitely something that is not imagined by them. Everybody laughs and sniggers at the idea of the closeted movie idol. But his concerns, her concerns are real. That's another area in which we need to do a little more winning and a little less kind of... I would say, mute acceptance of the idea that the war is won and that everything's fine until everybody comes out. I'm almost paraphrasing a song by Rufus Wainwright now, but, you know, they should fling open the doors and everybody should feel free to come out. And until that moment happens, then we're still waging a war. This has been a conversation with writer-director John Butler about his film, Handsome Devil. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Something's going on, change is taking place, children smiling. Watch Handsome Devil free on Netflix and rent on Vudu, YouTube, or Google Play. On the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we were reminded that one of the great gay films to tackle the events of that day was really about the aftermath, and it starred a gay, ugly Betty funny man. Hey, it's me. Leave a message. Hello. I'm ringing about the advert in this week's Village Voice. I know it's a dreadful time, but if you could give me a ring, I'd be quite grateful. I'm at the St. Regis Hotel. Hello there, this Three is Connor. Four, I'm interested in checking one, out the apartment share you listed online. Yeah, you know, I already live below 14th Street, so it's not a problem for me to get there at all. Like, it'd be great to see it this afternoon. Now hey, good. calling about the uh, apartment thing. This Number might five, uh, be bad timing eight, and all, but uh, I need to find a place soon as my girlfriend's giving me the boot. So uh, I wanted to... That's her on the other line. All right. Uh, you got my number now, so let me know when you're showing it. Okay, later. In the wake of 9-11-themed movies, like Paul Greengrass's real-time United 93 and Oliver Stone's heavy-handed World Trade Center, writer-director Brian Sloan's WTC View is a refreshing, stripped-down take on the after-effects of the tragedy without the special effects. Based on his astonishing play, Brian's film is about a young gay man who places an ad on September 10th looking for a new roommate to share his two-bedroom apartment. Not only is it in Soho, it has a great view of the Twin Towers. I'm Brian Sloan, filmmaker and writer. What was the genesis of the film? Well, it basically was inspired by a very true life situation. On September 10th, right before I went to bed that night, I'd put an ad online on the Village Voice website for a roommate. I had been trying to find a roommate for about a month, I guess, and had not really been focused on it. I was just kind of emailing friends and calling people and wasn't really doing a big search. I had a lot of other things going on at the time, and I just wasn't focused on it. So I really, the 15th of September was coming up, so I put this ad out. And then the next day, you know, September 11th, everything happened that happened. My apartment is in the Soho part of New York, so we weren't directly affected, but, you know, it was something that happened basically in my neighborhood. So I left the apartment. I stayed with my boyfriend out in Brooklyn, and a couple days later, I called my answering machine, and it was the strangest mix of these frantic messages of my friends wondering where I was, mixed in with people saying, oh, hi, I'd like to come see your apartment (laughs) on September 12th. You know, people called about the apartment on September 12th. And that, to me, just was extraordinary. I didn't know what to make of it even. I just knew it was very bizarre. 
and unusual. So six to eight months later, I just started thinking about those messages and that whole situation of me trying to find the roommate. And I thought it could be an interesting way in to explore what happened on 9-11 for the people who lived in Manhattan, not necessarily the people, the many victims who died, which is, I think, the story most people know. And this, you know, is meant to be the story people don't know. Talk about the transition from stage to screen. Well, I started writing it as a play, really, because I thought there was no way this could ever be a movie. The way I sort of envisioned it was very much these people coming to see this apartment, different people coming in to visit, and basically telling their stories and having this conversation about what was going on in the world and how that was affecting everyone's lives. And I started writing it as a play because I couldn't see it as anything but a play. And then when we did the play, we got some really great notices, but we had trouble finding anyone commercially in the theater world who wanted to transfer it because there had been two big 9-11 themed plays previous to this one, and they had been huge flops. And uh, the feeling in the New York commercial world was nobody wanted to see a play about 9-11. So then we started you know, exploring it as a film and fortunately found some investors to make it happen. In WTC View, we are introduced to Eric's best friend, Josie, whose husband has lost interest in her since 9-11. We learn of Eric's earlier breakup with his boyfriend, which threw him off balance even before the horrific events outside the window. And we meet the prospective roomies he interviews. So, uh, you don't have an apartment right now? Oh, my uh, place was down in Battery Park City. Oh. I shouldn't say was. It's still there. They just won't let us in yet. They said all the units are covered in dust. Layer of toxic crap on everything. Were you there when it happened? No, thank God. I would have freaked out. I mean, not that I didn't freak out, but I mean, you know, it's two blocks away. So, you'd already left for work? Nah, 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 nah. I was in Jersey City uh, Monday night to meet this chick for a date. Oh. Um. Are you gay? Uh, yeah, but I... The ad didn't come out and say it. I could read between the lines. Clean, quiet, responsible, seeks male, gay. <laughs> well, uh, gay is charged. <laughs> five years after 9-11, there have been five or six plays and a handful of movies dealing with the tragedy. But Brian Sloan believes that WTC View is a bit different. Most of them tend to go at 9-11 in a very direct way and tend to tell people things they already know, and they tend to be, you know, a little melodramatic. And I think that is off-putting, I think, to audiences, to a modern audience, especially given the fact that everyone is so familiar with these events. And the thing that I think made WTC View unique was that it really takes a more sideways approach. It's really about this guy trying to find a roommate in a very strange time. The 9-11 aspect of it is certainly there, and it's certainly a big part of the show, but the show has a dramatic focus, which is not 9-11. It's about him and his apartment and his relationship with his boyfriend as well and how that's being affected by all this stuff. What would you like people to take away from your film? The events of 9-11 were so massive, I think sometimes it's hard for people to even get a grasp of what happened. The thing I was going for, I guess, in WTC View was to really show on a very personal and intimate level one person's struggle with all this and how even the death of one person can really throw people's lives asunder. And I think when you look at the play in that context and then think, well, this happened to 3,000 other people, basically, then I think hopefully you can sort of understand really the immenseness of that event. I think it's still something people don't quite get in a way. 
And part of that's because of all the things that have happened since then have sort of politicized the events of 9-11. And I want the play to sort of show, in the movie, to show to people that, you know, this was an immense tragedy first and foremost. And I think that's something that's kind of gotten lost in the rush of Afghanistan and Iraq and now these other bombings in other cities and countries around the world. But this is really a pretty immense event, and I think it's still something people are coming to terms with. This has been a conversation with Brian Sloan, writer-director of I Think I Do and now WTC View. Brian's also the author of the hilarious novels A Really Fine Prom Mess and Tale of Two Summers. More info can be found at briansloan.com. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. If I told you my name Would you believe me? WTC View can be rented to stream on Apple TV or Amazon Prime Video. We'll be back with a classic gay Tino report after this quick break. Don't go away. Samuel Barber says thank you. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in Westchester, Pennsylvania in 1910, Samuel Barber played piano by age six and studied organ at 11. By age 12, he snagged his first job as organist at the local church, but was fired the next year because he refused to hold notes longer for congregational singing unless it was specifically written into the music. Barber would become a world-famous composer. Living near Longwood Gardens, his family often attended music events there, which were experiences young Samuel cherished. To express his gratitude, he wrote a nine-page organ piece titled To Longwood Gardens and dedicated it to Mr. and Mrs. Pierre Dupont for it was through their generosity the gardens were open to the public. The piece was dated April 1925. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Matt Jewell. Hello, I'm Matthew Camp and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. (laughs) 